book of John. We're in John chapter 1. So we spent two weeks in John chapter 1. We, uh, we went through the prologue of John, and in that he makes the case that we saw that through faith in the name of the Son of God, we are able to become children of God. That was his whole case. And he is writing this book to us that we might know and believe. That's his whole point. That's his intention, that we might know that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe in his name that we might become children of God. That is the whole point. And he, he told us that, how it might work here, kind of a synopsis of that through the first 18 verses. And now he begins to go into some detail. And so we begin in verse 19 in chapter 1, and we're going to go through verse 34 this morning. It'll focus on mainly uh, on, on John the Baptist, and let's see what he has to say. So let's read that text together. That's John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. It says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they asked him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to us clearly in your word, that you would help us to understand what you had intended through John for us to know this morning. And I pray that we might know and that we might believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's look. It says, this is the testimony of John. If you were to back up just a little bit, you can go back and look. Look at verses 6 and 7 in chapter 1. He is talking about John the Baptist. And uh, here it just says John, by the way. Now, we know that he's not speaking of John himself. He's not talking in the third person. He's talking about John the Baptist. It never says John the Baptist here. It just says John. Um, his name really became to be John the Baptist, or actually John the Baptizer um, was really his name, the one who baptizes John. Um, that's how he, he became known, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And uh, 
here's what it says. This is the testimony of John. If you're looking back at verses 6 and 7, it says, There was a man sent from God. His name is John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Okay? He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And then if we look here at verse 19, it says, And this is uh, the same word, the witness, or this is the testimony. This is what I was talking about previously. Back when I said earlier, briefly, uh, that John came to bear witness. Now, let me tell you about that witness. So this is what he's doing. He's giving us some details now. So this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Okay, so there was a group in Jerusalem uh, known as the Sanhedrin. They were the... Uh, the big guys in charge, basically, the big chief leaders. And it was made up of 70 men plus one, 70 men plus the high priest. And the high priest kind of resided over this group. We know this council. We've seen them in other places. Um, specifically uh, in Acts, we see this council at work. Uh, Acts 6.12, for example, says they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They came upon him. They seized him and they brought him before the council. Um, so uh, there's, there's a council that the Jewish people would take to and say, these are our leaders. So it was 70 guys plus one who was the high priest who resided over them. Now, many times in the book of John, he's going to say the Jews. See, it says there was a group of priests and Levites sent from the Jews, most likely referring to this group of people. So the Jewish leaders sent some people to John to question him about who he was and basically on what authority he had to be in the desert uh, baptizing people. Right? Because who is this guy? All the big leaders are us. But who are you? And why are you doing this? Okay? So here's what we have. If there were Jewish leaders, uh, don't you think that they would want to know why there was a guy baptizing Jewish people? Why are you doing this? So they sent him and they said, who are you? We need to know. We want to know. So look down at verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Strange wording there, right? He confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed. Why didn't he deny? Because there was no charge brought against him verbally that he was the Christ. They didn't say, are you the Christ? He, and he said, no, I'm not. They didn't ask him that. They just said, who are you? And he said, well, let me start here. I am not the Christ. Now, he, he, he confessed it. He didn't deny it because there was no charge for him to deny. But he said, I will start here. I am not the Christ. So remember that there was about a 400-year gap up until John the Baptist to where people had not heard from the voice of God. And, and a guy comes in the wilderness speaking on behalf of God. A prophet. A prophet just like the prophets of old. Right? A guy comes and he's, he's speaking on behalf of God. They need to know who this guy is. And they think, could this be the Christ? Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? So he begins by saying, before you even ask the question, I know what you're thinking. Uh, That's not me. Okay, I'm, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the promised Messiah. Um, I think it's interesting here, and, and we just need to see what an opportunity it was for John to elevate himself, by the way. He could have made himself out to be more than what he was. When people came and questioned him and they said, who are you? He said, let me start right away and say, I, I am no one great. Please know that. I, I am no one great. But I'm going to tell you about someone who's great. Now, 
that application doesn't run very deep, but I think it's one that we need to settle in our hearts. You know, when people ask you who you are, where is your identity found? Do you elevate yourself, or do you say, oh, I'm nobody, but I'll tell you about someone who is everything? Um, there's an opportunity there. Whenever you meet someone, introduce yourself to someone, someone asks who you are, what, what do you do? Uh, what an opportunity to tell them about someone who's great when, when you're not. Okay, so they continue on. Then if you're not the Christ, they asked him then, okay, thanks for settling that for us. Are you Elijah? That's their next question. Now, this question is, is a very interesting question, and more interesting is actually his response when he says, no, I am not. Because that's contradictory, seemingly, to other parts of Scripture that say that John the Baptist is Elijah. Okay, so let's understand that. Elijah was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, do you remember? You find that in 2 Kings 2, verse 11. Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind. So he doesn't die a physical death, but he's taken up into heaven. And so what the Jewish leaders at the time thought was, one day he's going to return just like he was sent. So he, he did, he's not dead, he's just kind of been waiting. And one day he's going to kind of be beamed back down to earth just like he was taken up. So we're waiting for Elijah basically to be reincarnated. Right? We are waiting for the Elijah, the prophet Elijah, to return to earth. And knowing that this was their thought and this was their belief, how does he answer? Well, no, I am not the reincarnate Elijah. Now, another way of understanding this, though, in his response is that it is possible that John the Baptist didn't fully come to terms with who he was. However, he does give an answer for who he is later on, and he knows he's the fulfillment of prophecy. So... Remember, Elijah was living in about the 800s, okay? So this was about almost 900 years ago because he was in the first part of that century. Um, I want to read a, uh, two passages here that, that predict that Elijah will return because we might ask, well, why did they think that Elijah was going to come back to earth? Uh, they had reason to believe that. And, you know, actually they were right in part if they had just understood it the right way. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way for me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's one of them. And the other one is Malachi 4, 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, Malachi was living in the 400s, speaking about a guy who lived in the 800s, and now we are in the, uh, the great turn here, okay? So uh, we're, we're just in the beginning of the first century. So there's 400-year gaps, basically. Speaking about a guy in the 800s, a guy in the 400s is prophesying about him, and now we have guys in the first century, 400 years later, who are looking back to that prophecy. So we're, we're covering a pretty big span of time here, okay? So he says, are you... Elijah returning as Malachi the prophet had spoken of? And his answer is no. Now, I do want to look real quick at how Jesus spoke of John the Baptist because it's very important. Matthew 11, verses 7 through 15. I'll read it for you. It says, And they went away, and Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? That is, when you heard of John the Baptist and you went out to see this guy everybody was talking about, what did you expect to see? 
a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are king in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, but more than a prophet. This is of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is at least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. And again, he reaffirms that in Matthew 17. Okay? So Jesus understood Elijah to, or, uh, John the Baptist to be Elijah, whereas John the Baptist himself either didn't understand or, secondly, didn't want to come to terms with the fact that people thought he was the actual reincarnation of Elijah. So who is John the Baptist? Is he the reincarnation of Elijah? No, no he's his own person. But as we'll see later, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. All right. Also, uh, it's really interesting that he dressed just like Elijah. Second uh, Kings 1.8, they answered him about Elijah. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. Matthew 3.4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. These guys dressed the same. Okay? I, don't, I don't know how that worked exactly um, as far as uh, he, he wanted to uh, be like the guy who he knew he was going to be. Um, but it was prophesied even from his birth that he would be Elijah. His father knew it. We're going to look at that in a little bit. Um, but it, it, physically, he resembled Elijah the prophet, and he was Elijah to come. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Okay, so is he Elijah? No, he's not the reincarnate Elijah, but yes, he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah and is the fulfillment, the right fulfillment of that prophecy. Okay, so next question. That's why he answers no. Next question. Um, are you the prophet? Okay, so he's not the Christ. He's not reincarnate Elijah, although he is a spiritual Elijah. Um, are you the prophet? Well, who is that? Well, there are three figures here that they're referencing, and they start out with the greatest, as they think. Okay, the Christ. Well, no. Okay. Well, how about uh, Elijah? Are you the prophet? The prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to, be, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desire to the Lord your God on the day of Horeb, on the day of assembly, let me not hear again the voice of my Lord or see the great fire anymore lest I die. The Lord spoke to me. They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet from you, from their uh, like you, from their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He will speak to them all that I command him. So there is an anticipated prophet, someone who they believe to be distinct from the Christ, distinct from Elijah, distinct from other big figures. The problem is they didn't rightly understand this prophecy either, but it's clarified for us by Peter in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. He quotes this, and he says, this is Jesus. Okay, so the great prophet is Jesus, the one who was raised up among his, amongst his brothers, and all that he says, we need to listen, uh, that was Jesus. He is the prophet to come, okay? So, so he answers, no, I'm not the prophet. That's, that's actually someone else. And he actually said, you, you, you don't know who he is. You, you can see him with your eyes, but you're not, you can't tell who he is. You don't know who he is. 
Um, okay, so he says, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, and here's, here's how he identifies himself. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Okay, so he understands himself to be the fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now let's look a little bit at this prophecy. He understands himself to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. The voice. There's a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight or prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So there is a desert or a wilderness. And in that wilderness, there is the voice of one crying out. Now already, the prophecy is an actual image of who he was. He was a voice in the wilderness. He lived in the wilderness. So there is a prophecy of one in the wilderness, and he is literally a voice in the wilderness crying out. What is he crying out? Make straight a way for our God. Make, a straight, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So here's the highway. The highway is not a path for us to get to God. I don't want you to understand that to make straight a path for God means you need to straighten out your life so you can get to God. That's not what it means. What it actually says is prepare the way for the Lord to come. That is, you're in the desert, and the path is not straight, which means it's crooked, and the Lord can't get through that path. How does the path become straight? Well, we look to the message of John the Baptist. What did he say to do? He said, repent and believe. If we repent and believe on Christ, the way of the Lord is made straight directly into the heart of people. The way for the Lord to be made straight is, is the way for the Lord to come to us does not mean that we initiate salvation because repentance is not possible without the Spirit of God working in our life. Okay, we are not the initiators. You don't have the strength or the energy in you or the willpower to say, I am such a bad person and I'm going to admit that and confess my sins to God. You can say it with your mouth, but it can't be genuine unless the Spirit of God is working in you. I want to read Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. It speaks of the heart. So an angel speaks to Zechariah. You remember Zechariah was John the Baptist's father. Okay, we remember this. We kind of cover this story sometimes during Christmas time. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been answered, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You will call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And pause right there. This was a, a Nazarite vow. Okay, there's sp something specific happening here. 
Okay, it doesn't mean to be holy, uh, he, he can't drink, because actually people looked at Jesus later on and said, John the Baptist came and he didn't drink, but you said he has a demon and I came drinking and you say that I'm a glutton and a drunk. So you can't have it both ways. But all this to say is that John the Baptist wasn't better than Jesus, obviously, but he had a Nazarite vow from birth, and we can talk about that more in depth about that another time. But there was something specific happening here. It says he must not drink wine or strong drink, but he, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, this, this is an angel speaking to, to Zechariah before John is born. Go, he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient, the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what is the, the, the thing that needs to be ready for the Lord to come to you? It's a heart that has repented, a heart that has been made straight. This is why his message was to repent. What did John the Baptist come to do? The purpose of John the Baptist was to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah with a message of repentance and to publicly reveal Jesus as the Messiah. This was his whole ministry, to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah. The picture we have is someone crying out in the wilderness. What is the wilderness? The wilderness is utter desolation with no life in it, but yet there is a voice crying out. The desert, the desolation, the ruin is sin. And yet even in the midst of our sin, there is something crying out that says repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn to the Lord, repent of your sin. Turn to God. This was his message. Repent. Repent of your sins and be baptized. And he was baptizing, and we're about to talk about that. Okay, let's, let's look next at what it says. Verse 24. It says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Let's stop right there just for a second. I want to give you two different understandings of this because they kind of mean something a little different. And now they had been sent from the Pharisees. One way of interpreting this is that among those who were sent, some of them were Pharisees. Or... It might mean those who were of the Sanhedrin, some of those were Pharisees. And it is that group that sent the priests and the Levites because the others weren't too concerned. Okay? Two different ways of understanding that. The Pharisees were the largest and most powerful group. They developed the oral law. And they were basically probably what we would call like progressives. They, uh, they, they, they were kind of open to some things and, and changing things a little bit. But then you have the Sadducees. They were in charge of the temple and its services. They opposed the oral law. They didn't like the oral law. Um, and they were more traditionalist. Okay? Um, but most of the priests were Sadducees. In particular, the, pre the people who were sent were concerned with ritual rites. They were priests and Levites. They were concerned with ritual rites. Now, it's important because what was John doing? He was baptizing. What right do you have to do what you're doing? And that's what they ask him next. Verse 25, so they asked him, why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, 
I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, it's, it's, it's again a very interesting fact about John that his father, Zechariah, was a priest. And his mother was also from the line of Aaron. All Levites were not uh, priests, but if you were a priest, you would have been a Levite. You had to be descended directly from Aaron in order to have the right of, priest, uh, the right of priesthood. And John the Baptist had the right of priesthood. And there we find him in the desert, not in the temple, but in the desert, baptizing. There were two different types of baptism in the day. There was purification baptism and there was proselyte baptism. Purification baptism would be, there were some societies like the Qumran society, you know, like where we got the Dead Sea Scrolls. They practiced something, they, they, would, do, they would do daily baptisms, daily cleansings of water. But the thing is that they would always baptize themselves. It was never someone else baptizing them. They would wash themselves with water for cleansing. They would use uh, passages like Ezekiel 36, 25. I sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. Okay, so they took this as a, as a rite, a ritual rite to do daily cleansing. Okay, not all of them did that. Small groups did that. Some believe that John was of a group that did daily <coughs> baptism of themselves, daily washing. I don't know. Take that for what you want. I don't necessarily think that. But he was baptizing in the desert. There was another type of baptism. It was proselyte baptism. A proselyte is someone who, who comes uh, into the religion. Someone who is outside and who is baptized into as an initial kind of uh, sprinkling clean, whereas they were sprinkled clean with blood. They would have a type of sprinkling clean when they were introduced. But again, they would wash themselves so both types of baptism that were administered at the time, people would always wash themselves. But here we have a guy in the desert baptizing other people, washing them clean. <coughs> but he says, I baptize with water only. Why are you so concerned with me? What is water? There's going to come someone who will baptize with the Spirit. That's the guy you need to be looking out for. Okay, And if you continue to follow me, I'm going to tell you who he is. Because that's the mission that God sent me on, was to reveal the Messiah to Israel and to the world. Okay, And that's what we see happen next. Look at verse 29. It said, the next day, isn't that awesome? The next day that he was questioned, here it happens. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Okay, so look at this ver verse 34, because this basically comes, brings this whole thing to a conclusion. He says, and that's the witness. Remember that testimony, that witness that John brought? There it is, the Son of God. And remember, that was the whole point that John is getting to, right? That Jesus is the Son of God. He says, here's the first case in point, okay? Here it is. Believe this. There was a guy named John, okay? And he was actually related to Jesus. And he was born before Jesus. But then he comes and he says, there's someone who was before me. Um, and God has told me, and he has given me the spirit and power of Elijah, and they come to fulfill prophecy to prepare the way of the Lord. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into the, to, uh, to a region uh, where the Lord would set me, and I'm going to cry out, uh, repent, because the Lord is coming. The Lord is at hand. And when he comes, will he find complete, empty wilderness, or will he find something that's ready? Will he find a people ready for him when he comes? That's my ministry. Now, God also told me that while I'm baptizing, there will come a time when there will be a man come. And when I baptize him, the Spirit of God will come and rest on him and remain. And when I see that happen, that is the sign to me that that is the Messiah. That is the one who comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I baptize with water. Okay? We're looking for someone greater than water, okay? We're looking for the guy who comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then he sees him and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53, 6 and 7. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that goes before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. A sheep or a lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world. On him he has laid all of our iniquity. We have all gone astray, but yet here he comes to take away our sin. God making a way to us in our desolation. God making his way to us. John came baptizing with water for repentance of sin, preparing the hearts of the people. But John's baptism was never an end in itself. It was to point towards something greater. So, we understand the story of John the Baptist. What kind of application might this have for us? How does this impact our life? Well, I, I hope that it already has, because any time the Word of God is read... There is the power of God. So we could leave it at that, but I want to draw your attention to just a couple of things this morning. John came to baptize with water. Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. But yet today we are still baptized with water. And yet today we are still baptized with the Holy Spirit. Kind of a mess of things has happened in that. Because now there are some who believe that unless I am baptized with water, I do not have the baptism of the Spirit. I want to read two passages here because this is a present reality. For many in this room maybe have family or friends who believe this. Two passages here, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There is a progression of what happens here. There is hearing first. In him, in him, when you heard the word of the truth, when you heard the word, hearing, and believed in him, believing, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you believed what you heard, you were sealed with the Spirit. How many of those heard and believed and yet were not sealed with the Spirit? None. How many of those who heard and, be and believed were sealed with the Holy Spirit? All. Okay? There was no water baptism necessary for a sealing of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that also means when you become a believer, you're not waiting for a second outpouring of the Spirit into your life. Okay? You are not awaiting a second outpouring of the Spirit of God into your life. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Oh, so we might say, okay, so I can be a person who doesn't have the Spirit of God. Okay, so I'm a believer in everything. I'm just waiting for that Spirit to come. But you got to finish out the verse here. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Oh, so there are none who are Christ who don't have the Spirit. Correct. If you have Christ, you have his Spirit as well. The Spirit that is from Christ which we know as the Holy Spirit, third part of the Trinity. All believers have the Spirit of God. Some fool themselves into believing, I just need the Spirit. I just, I just need the Spirit. There is lingo, phraseology, mindset stuff, songs on the radio that try to convince you that all you need is to just get the Spirit. Just, just get the Spirit. Just get it. Just get it. Just get it. Get Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, that is right in a sense, but it is not the way that it is meant. That is not the way that it is meant. There is a thought that you can somehow usher in this presence of God into your life for your own personal gain. That is why the music is the way that it is. It is believed in charismatic theology that if you sing a certain way, you can actually usher in the presence of God through that music. And the point is to enjoy the Spirit. Just get the Spirit and enjoy it. If that's the point of worship, then how is God glorified in me coming to say, I'm only coming to church today so I can get more of that spirit? We come to worship to give, not to get. Worship is giving to God. Open-handedly. I'm not coming to get and pull from you. But yet God graciously does give. But I don't come to him with the expectation that he owes me anything. You cannot bend the ear of God or twist his wrist to get him to do something. He is God and you are not. Water baptism then does not save you. It does not usher in the presence of the Spirit of God into your life. 
repenting of your sins, believing on Christ in the gospel of truth. That is what you need. So then why are we baptized? Why do we still do this thing of water baptism today? If what matters is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then why water baptism? That should be kind of done away with, right? But it wasn't done away with historically. The church continued on to practice water baptism for a reason. I want to read Ezekiel 36, 25, and 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Now, if you think that can happen with water, just try it. Go home, take a shower, see if it cleanses your soul. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Listen to that. I will put my spirit and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. That is what the Spirit of God does. He pushes us towards obedience, and He convicts our hearts. Now, can we push away what the Spirit is doing by our sin? Can we say, I don't like it, I don't like it, and you try to keep them down? Yes, you sure can. You do it every time you sin. Can you feel conviction and yet push the conviction down and continue to do what you know is wrong? Absolutely. You sure can. And you will be disciplined from a loving, holy God who says you are wrong. And by his mercy, you will come to understand, I'm so sorry I did that wrong. Thank you for your judgments on me to make my way straight, which is exactly the message from Isaiah last week. The judgments of God is what makes our path straight. Keep your mind stayed on Him, and your way will be straight. He will cause us to be careful to obey His rules. That's what it says in Ezekiel 36. And then I will read also from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. How were you justified? By the Spirit. By, by the washing of water? Not by water, but we were washed and we were cleansed. The washing and the cleansing is an internal reality. And by this, we are justified by the Spirit of our God. I want to call to mind for you this morning The day of your baptism. Can you go back to that day in your mind? For some of you, that was a long time ago. For some of you, you can recall it. I, I recall mine. I had two, actually. One when I was a little tiny baby. 
and they sprinkled water on my head. It didn't cleanse my soul. It didn't purify me. It didn't cleanse me. Sure, it made me mad. But then later on, when I was 17 years old, I repented of my sin. And I knew that I needed a Savior. And then someone told me, okay, well, you need to be baptized. I said, okay. Uh, but I already was when I was a baby. I said, does that not count? So I literally said that. I said, does that not count? And they said, well, you need to be baptized again. Now, unfortunately, I had a pastor who, who didn't answer this question appropriately. He said, oh, yeah, it counts. But we just really need to do it for membership. <laughs> so... Anyway, I was baptized under false pretenses, basically, of what baptism really was. Why are we baptized with water? Doug, remember your day, your baptism? You did it in here? Right over here on the floor. No, well, it wasn't literally on the floor, but you were in a little tub. I just spray you with a hose. <laughs> and I baptize you, Doug. <laughs> uh, The water doesn't do anything. The water is not supernatural. The spirit is supernatural. The water doesn't cleanse. The spirit cleanses. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. You're thinking, well, I already know this. I'm checking out. I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat. I'm going somewhere with this. Listen. The spirit is supernatural. The water is not. You didn't save yourself, God saved you. And you didn't make your own heart straight. God's spirit. Sanct you say the same word sanctify, that is to make holy. You didn't do it, God did it. God, did, God, God came down to your place of desolation, your place of ruin. He came to you, and he breathed life into you. So then what good does our baptism do? Our water. It became the practice of Christians that we would symbolize to the world of an internal cleansing that has happened supernaturally with natural elements. Okay? The natural elements then symbolize a spiritual reality that happened inside that otherwise you would not see in a momentary setting. Okay? Someone repents of their sin and believes on Christ. In that moment, the Spirit of God comes into their life and baptizing. Now, the word baptizing means to immerse. He comes and he sets his spirit in us and washes us and cleanses us. He justifies us in that moment, in that moment of faith. You are cleansed. And so what we do is we symbolize two things. I went like this, but it's this. Two things, okay? Two things. Number one, as Paul tells us, we symbolize a place of death to a place of life. Now, the mode of baptism for many is negotiable. Why? Because it's not the mode of baptism that saves you. To be immersed in water doesn't mean you have to be immersed in order to be immersed by the Spirit. You only dip your head in, that's the only thing that gets the Spirit, evidently. So... But the mode of baptism does help us to understand a more full picture of what the gospel has done. 
That is, when we are buried completely in the water and then raised out of that water, what does that show? That at one time we were dead, and by the Spirit of God we have been raised to life, and in that raising we were cleansed. In that raising from the water we were cleansed from our sin. We were purified by the Spirit of God, not by the water, but the water does represent that, doesn't it? When you came out of the water, at least if the water was clean, you came out cleaner than you were before, right? The water washes, it cleanses. So that's, 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 that's the two realities, is from death to life and from dirty to clean. From death to life and from dirty to clean. What Paul urges the church is this. Have you forgotten that you were washed? Have you forgotten that you were cleansed? Why then do you try to make yourself dirty over and over? Why are you just like my dog after I give it a bath? The one thing you want to do is go roll in the mud. You have been washed by the Spirit of God. He wants to present you to himself spotless, blameless, without blemish before him. Now we have the work of Christ that has come, and he has, and this is, I think, sometimes where we get this message confused. The Spirit of God has cleansed you from all sin, and yet you're a sinner. Right? That is, we have a right standing before our God in that, our sins are forgiven. We are justified before God. But it doesn't mean that you have stopped sinning. But what it does mean is that whenever you do sin, believe that that sin has already been paid for with the blood of Christ. It has already been washed from you. So there's one of two ways you could take this in application. Number one is, if it's already been forgiven, why not do it? Paul says, may it never be. Should I continue on in sin that grace may abound? I'm just giving God an opportunity to do something good. Or should I continue to keep in step with my initial repentance every day? Obviously, the question is this. When have you repented of your sins? Not initially for salvation, but because you're a sinner every day. When is the last time you repented? When is the last time you dropped your face before the holy God who saved you and said, I have been doing this so wrong. And I need you to forgive me. And we have a father who does forgive. And he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, well, why do I need to ask for forgiveness if I've already been forgiven? The same way that my daughter bypasses harsh discipline is when she admits her fault to my face and asks for forgiveness because then I know I've won my daughter. She understands. Go to your father and confess your sins. He's not going to beat you up and be mean to you if you don't, but he will discipline you, and sometimes those hurt just the same. But it's for your good. 
Confess your sins to him. He is faithful and he is just. He is a good father. He will forgive you. My urge to you this morning is to go to him now. Go to him now and confess. He will forgive you. He is a good God. And what he wants is for his children to walk in obedience. So we recall our baptism today. We recall not our water baptism, but we do recall the day that we confessed and we believed on Christ. Have you kept in step with your repentance? Do you continue to walk in faithfulness to your God? Do you continue to walk in obedience? If not, confess before him and do it. We're going to sing a song together. The name of the song is All I Have is Christ. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Just as you did not contribute to saving yourself in your own baptism, you said, I need to be baptized, preacher. You didn't save yourself. God did it. When you sing a song with all the energy you have in you, do you know that you're not producing what God desires unless you're doing it from a heart of repentance? Do you know that? Do you know it doesn't matter how much money you put in that box over there today if you're not doing it out of a heart of repentance and humility? That's what he wants from you. He wants your heart. He's got all your money. It's already his. He's got all your stuff. Okay, He's already got all your time, by the way. He wants your heart. He wants your heart to walk in obedience to him. Let's do that today.